Good morning, everybody. Please, if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10. So if you weren't with us last week, we began a brand new series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we very much intend to be in this letter for a good number of months, taking our time as we work our way through it. Uh, And this morning, looking at chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. And the title I've given to this morning's message is No Other Gospel. Galatians 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Have you ever been so shocked and alarmed by something that someone was about to do that you had to immediately say something? You had to put aside all pleasantries. You had to jump right in and say something because of what they were about to do. Maybe it was someone about to ring on the wrong doorbell or step out into a busy road or someone about to put salt in their coffee instead of sugar, or someone about to make a life decision that you were convinced would be disastrous for them. Sometimes there's no time to discuss light-hearted things first. Sometimes the gravity and the urgency of the situation requires strong words and immediate action. And that is essentially what we find as we continue in Paul's letter Uh, In the opening verses of this letter this morning, we we looked last Sunday at the first five verses, and we saw there Paul begin to remind the Galatians of the gospel that he had preached to them. And there was nothing extremely unusual about those opening verses, apart from the fact Paul spent a little bit longer than normal talking about his apostleship. But this morning we come to a section where, judging by Paul's other letters, we would now expect him to move into thanksgiving and praise. Give thanks in all circumstances. Paul would soon be writing to another church, the church of the Thessalonians. And Paul really was a man who practiced what he preached, always finding things in his recipients, those he was writing to, to give thanks for, for God's work in them. Uh, We can see how good he was at this, because even when writing to the Corinthians, who had so many moral flaws and questionable behaviors that most of us would have blushed from head to toe if we'd gone to visit them, still Paul was able to start out his letter to them by expressing great thanks for God's work of grace in their lives. But here in this morning's letter, there is no time and this is no place for thanksgiving. The Galatian churches find themselves in the gravest danger and the most dire predicament of any church in the New Testament. And it's quite possible that they don't even realize it yet. In fact, many of us, had we visited, would perhaps at first glance not have realized it either. 
They certainly would have looked more godly and mature than the Corinthians. And perhaps in seeing them, we might have thought to ourselves, I'd quite like to be more like the Galatians. Look how godly they are. But what Paul can see, even if they can't see it themselves yet, is that the believers in these churches are putting themselves in deadly spiritual danger. The Galatians are in the process of turning to a completely different gospel. And the problem is, of course, as we know, there is no other gospel. There is no other way of salvation than the one that Paul has already shared with them. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by human effort. What they're now turning to instead is this kind of hollow and deadly grace plus human effort message. And so in our passage this morning, where we might, find, we might expect to find encouraging words of thanksgiving, we instead find words of the strongest possible appeal and warning. Words that are divinely intended to stop the Galatians in their tracks, in this life and death situation, to awaken them to their peril. It's as if Paul is saying to them, I want you to realize this is no small step you are taking. I want you to know the full consequences of embracing a different gospel when really there is no other gospel. I want you to know the danger you're in so that you'll step back from the precipice before you lose everything. And so he sets out to describe for them in these five verses we're looking at this morning what they perhaps can't see for themselves yet, that what they are doing is nothing less than deserting the gospel and that a major cause of their desertion is they've been listening to teachers who are distorting the gospel. Those are our first two headings this morning, deserting the gospel, distorting the gospel, and then we'll finish up with a third one, just drawing out a few more lessons for us, how we can avoid the same error and instead keep holding to the gospel. Okay, so that's kind of the, the map of where we're going this morning. First of all then, first heading, deserting the gospel. I'm astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Paul, in, in this instance, cannot hide his surprise and astonishment at what is going on. Only recently had he and Barnabas been amongst the churches in Galatia, sharing with them the good news of grace in Jesus. And many there in that region of Galatia had joyfully received it and become Christians. You can actually read some of the sort of headline press clippings of Paul and Barnabas's time there in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Here's a few of the, the press clippings, if you like. How in Pisidian Antioch, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. How when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. How at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. How in Lystra, they were welcomed like gods because of their message. And how then at Derby they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. These are all extracts from the book of Acts to report what happened in this region. It must have been one of the most fruitful missionary journeys in all of church history. 
But it seems that no sooner have Paul and Barnabas left and moved on than Paul hears reports that they're deserting the very message of grace that they were so thrilled to receive so recently, the message that had saved them. I wonder if Paul must have felt something like Moses when uh, Moses came down from Mount Sinai just so soon after God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and Moses comes down to find that the people are already worshipping a golden calf of their own making. That's what the Galatians are doing in turning from the gospel, in adding to grace with law and religious ceremony. They, They likely thought they were improving the gospel. What they're actually doing is abandoning the gospel for an idol of their own making. The word Paul chooses to describe what they're doing is this word deserting. And it's actually a word that was originally used in a military setting to describe a radical change of allegiance from one side to the other. A a swapping of sides, basically to describe the, the actions of a traitor or a deserter. So you just imagine for a moment a soldier who in the middle of a battle suddenly changes sides and dons the enemy's uniform. Or a footballer. Ten minutes into a match, suddenly changing ends and putting on the the, the other team's jersey. How shocking it would be for a soldier or a player to do that. But that is what the Galatians are doing. And Paul wants them to know, this is no minor amendment that you're making. It is desertion. They are deserting the gospel that saved them. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, as if that wasn't bad enough, worse still... In deserting the gospel of grace, he says they're also deserting the God of grace. Deserting, he says, him who called you in the grace of Christ. Uh, So here is the ultimate tragedy here, as if it could get any worse. In believing this gospel that adds works to grace, they're deserting God himself. Now, I think all of this is is a really challenging idea in our current culture. We live in a culture that generally says it doesn't matter precisely what you believe so long as it makes you happy and it doesn't harm anyone around you. And even many Christians and churches seem increasingly to think the same, that it's not very important exactly what you believe so long as it makes you happy and doesn't harm anyone around you. But that is not what God thinks about what we believe. God cares extremely deeply about what truths we choose to believe. In fact, he has made salvation completely dependent on what we believe and trust in. He offers us restored relationship with him that relies entirely on who we believe and trust in. What we believe and who we believe as individuals and as churches could not be more important. And the Galatians are this living, breathing illustration of this. I guess it's partly why, why their, um, their mess is recorded for us in the Bible. We get to see firsthand that by dabbling in dodgy doctrine and in a gospel that isn't really the gospel, they're about to desert and cut themselves off from both the grace of God and the God of all grace. As Paul will say later in this letter, chapter 5, verse 4, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. It's a sobering words. Now, there are, I think, two important 
lessons for us to learn and take note of here, even before we move on through the passage. The first is just how easy it is to start drifting away from the gospel. Maybe at first even with us not realizing what's happening. Now I'm going to return and say a bit more about that at the end, but I just wanted to kind of put one of those sticky tabs, those colorful sticky tabs you can put in a book. Someone was showing me recently. Just put that in there now to highlight how quickly Paul says the Galatians have wandered away from the truth. The sheer speed of it is alarming. And if it happened to them, it could happen to anyone. It could happen to us. The second lesson to notice now is also this, that it doesn't require an all-out denial of God's existence or a complete conversion to atheism or secularism or some other kind of world faith or religion for someone to effectively turn their backs on God. You don't have to do some, anything so drastic to effectively turn away from God. It simply requires a denial of the gospel of grace. In fact, it's possible to turn away from God and his grace even while being very religious, even while professing faith in God, and even while promoting godliness. Uh, just think about the Galatians and um, a friend to some of us here, uh, Peter Mead in his little book on Galatians says this, were they diving into gross immorality? No. Were they leaving Christianity and signing up to some other religion? No. What were they doing? They were actually becoming more religious, more Jewish, and they might say more biblical, even more godly. Is it possible that a greater personal commitment to keeping the law could mean turning from God? That is what Paul is saying. Whenever someone adds good works and religion to grace as the basis on which they believe they're saved, they are deserting not only the gospel, but God himself. A works-based gospel is a godless gospel. The question we have to ask now then is how did this happen? Hopefully we're a little bit shooken up already by this and, and, and uh, in the right way um, alarmed that this could happen. But how did it happen? How did it happen so quickly amongst these churches? Where did this false gospel come from and how was it embraced so readily? The answer here again is a sobering one and it's one that we need to give careful attention to as we move on into the second half of the passage now. Because here's the thing, while we might think that the greatest danger to our faith in the modern world comes from things like atheism, uh, from from other faiths and worldviews, the truth is the far greater danger comes from distorted versions of Christianity itself. Far more dangerous distortions of the Christian faith. From those who actually call themselves Christians even, but who teach and promote their own twisted versions of the gospel of grace. There is the danger. The deadly destruction that is now on the brink of taking place in Galatia has been brought about not by uh, hostility and persecution from people completely unlike them, but by charm and flattery, by false teachers who claim to be great Christians and who claim to be able to help other Christians to come about by those who recklessly and shamelessly distort the gospel itself. 
So let's look then, secondly, this morning at those who are distorting the gospel amongst them. Verse 7 to 9. Paul says, verse 7, There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he's still addressing the Galatians themselves here. He's still writing to them. But he turns his focus now, turns their focus, onto the ones that have got them into this mess. He wants to give the Galatians a true picture of the teachers that they've been listening to. And so he tells them three things about these false teachers. Firstly, he tells them about the lasting effect of their false teaching. Secondly, the true essence of their false teaching. And thirdly, the ultimate end of these false teachers. Now, not one of these three home truths is pretty. It's not nice. But that is the point, of course, as Paul endeavors to awaken his readers to the folly of what they're doing. First of all, then, the lasting effect of these teachers' false teaching. It's they, he says, who trouble you. And that word trouble means to throw into confusion, to shake, or to agitate. The Galatians' minds have become like the clothes in the dryer at the laundrette. Okay, bear with me on this, I'll explain. I don't know if you've spent much time at the laundrette over the years. Uh, There have been several stages in my life where I've, I've had to go to the laundrette or depend on the laundrette. And there's not really much to keep you occupied in the laundrette when you're there, especially, I'm thinking back to days before smartphones. Uh, And if you'd gone and you'd forgotten to take a book, there was not much else to do than to just watch your washing. Uh, Not very exciting, although I would say the tumble dryers were better because they'd have a big glass door on and you could see what was going on in there. That's kind of like what's happening with the Galatians. Uh, Not that they're watching their washing, they're like the clothes in the tumble dryer. Just as the clothes in one of those giant tumble dryers tosses and throws and casts your clothes all over the place at high speed, violently from side to side, that is what, in a sense, the false teaching has done to the Galatians' minds. It has thrown their thoughts all over the place in great confusion. They're being troubled and shaken and agitated violently in every direction. Uh, This word troubled is used in Acts 15.24 as well, when the Jerusalem Council write their letter to the churches saying this. They say, We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you. There's that word again. Troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. The false teachers have not been a blessing to the Galatians. Maybe the Galatians thought they were... These false teachers were not a blessing. They have troubled them. They have unsettled their faith. They've thrown their minds into a state of turmoil. They've they've almost certainly confused them with this grace plus law message, a message that wasn't nearly as simple or as freeing as the message Paul had brought to them. Maybe the Galatians were even trying to reconcile those two messages in their mind, trying to somehow make Paul's message fit with this new upgraded message not realizing that the two will never blend. Martin Martin Luther once said, it seems a small matter to mingle the law and gospel, faith and works, but it creates more mischief than man's brain can conceive. Or to put it another way, the false teachers were giving the Galatians the biggest spiritual headache. And all of this, of course, is not to mention the most serious trouble of all, 
that they had led the Galatians into this great spiritual peril. Trouble is always what false teachers bring to Christians, especially when Christians and churches allow themselves to be taken in by their teaching. So they bring trouble. Secondly, Paul sums up the real, the true essence of their false teaching. Verse 8, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to distort it. They want to take the truth and twist it and deform it and disfigure it. Again, we have to remember how plausible, though, the message might have seemed to the Galatians, especially a group of fairly new Christians like they were. These teachers, they weren't coming in with a completely different message. They were still teaching that these things, uh, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he was the Savior of the world, that Jesus was the promised Messiah who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. They were teaching the need to repent of sin and trust in Christ to be saved. They were using all of the best Christian terminology and gospel terminology, agreeing with much of Paul's message, actually preaching salvation through faith in Jesus. They just wanted to take the message a bit further to make circumcision and Jewish law-keeping a necessary add-on, to complete, that's how they would have presented it, we want to complete God's saving work in you. That's the problem with distortions. They often still look and sound a lot like the original. Some of us are old enough to remember growing up, and maybe somewhere in, in your house or a friend's house, there was a TV with a portable aerial on top. Don't remember that? The real young ones amongst us are just like, yeah, he completely lost me now. I don't know what you're talking about. Little portable aerial on top of the TV. And if you had someone that was willing in your house and the picture wasn't great, you would, you would encourage them to be the one to go up and start to move the aerial around. And could you stand over there and hold it there? And so the picture gets clearer. We had to do that. And, but but you, would, you would settle for a reasonable picture in the end. Or you'd settle for the best you could get, really. Once you'd got it in the best position... The picture probably still wasn't perfect, but it was good enough to watch what you wanted to watch. It was close enough to the original program uh, that you were meant to be watching. Now, there are lots of things like that in life where we can put up with a little bit of distortion. We can still enjoy the essence of what it's meant to be. But the gospel is not like that. The gospel is not like watching an old portable TV with a slightly distorted picture. Even the smallest distortion to the gospel, even the smallest addition of works on top of grace for salvation, radically changes the nature of its message. Making a single work necessary on top of grace is like putting a, putting a, a single drop of deadly poison into your flask of drinking water. It turns the whole glass, the whole flask, poisonous. The false teachers in Galatia may well have defended their message by claiming that they were only making a few small additions to what Paul had preached. But even just a drop of works is sufficient to poison the whole water supply of God's grace. And this word Paul uses here for distort actually reinforces that because it, it, it denotes not a small but a radical uh, change, a radical set of results. Tom Schreiner writes, he describes it as like changing water into blood, fresh water into salt water, feasting into morning, daylight 
into darkness. That is the kind of distortion going on here when you add works to grace. They're promoting a hideous caricature. They are turning the gospel completely upside down and throwing the gear stick into reverse. But the gospel must never be reversed. One of the most beautiful and helpful things about the gospel is that there is this clear and simple order to it. It's, it's so easy to understand. It only works in one direction, and that's good news. And this, this direction, this getting it right, is summed up so beautifully in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Uh, you can turn there in your Bible if you like, but don't worry if not. Uh, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10, Paul first of all describes how we are saved. He says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Then he describes the result of our being saved, for we are his creation, talking about us being a new creation once we become Christians, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Another commentator, Tony Merida, says this of this passage. Notice we are, first of all, saved by grace alone. Secondly, for good works. We do not receive grace after we have worked for salvation. That would be the reversal of the gospel. If a person says, I'm going to do enough good things to be right with God and merit his grace and be saved, then we must inform him that he has officially reversed the gospel. He has put what was in the back into the front. There is an order to the gospel. False teachers distort this message of hope. Distorting, twisting, reversing, perverting God's message is what false teachers excel in doing. And they leave destruction in their wake. So that is already two good reasons to have nothing to do with them. But then Paul puts the final nail in the coffin by telling the Galatians about the ultimate end of these false teachers. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Twice he pronounces this solemn curse on all who teach a false gospel. And it really is as strong as it sounds. Anyone who preaches a mixture of grace and law for salvation is worthy of eternal condemnation. Let him be accursed. Paul's words right here. And a curse is a Greek word. It's anathema. You may have even heard that term used before. It's this Old Testament idea of a person or a thing being set apart for destruction because of how much what they're doing is hateful to God. Later on, Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's not necessarily what you expect to find in your Bible, but there it is. It's another Old Testament way of saying, I wish that you false teachers would just remove yourself from the assembly of God's people forever. God hates false gospels and false teaching. And so, as a result, does Paul. But even so, why does Paul react so strongly here? Why does he use such drastic language? 
to describe the false teacher's final end? Well, I think for at least two reasons. First of all, because the glory of Christ is at stake here. To make our works necessary for salvation, in addition to what Christ has done, is to belittle and disparage his finished work on the cross. It is actually to declare his cross redundant. Galatians 2 verse 21, If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. False gospels always glorify man. They always make much of man and what man can do. The real gospel boasts only in the Lord. As Spurgeon once said, if you meet with a system of theology which magnifies man, flee from it as far as you can. All glory and salvation belongs to the Lord because he has done it all. That's the first reason. The second reason Paul is so strong here is... is Clearly, because people's souls are at stake. Those who are taken in by a false gospel and who put their hope in that false gospel will themselves be eternally separated from God by their sins, as is everybody who dies without a saviour. The gospel is the most incredible rescue that has ever been known. It is, as you know, God's offer of the free gift of eternal life, through simple faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, that we might be raised as well. It's, it's an amazing message. And to lead someone away from that message is the most heinous crime a person could ever commit. To promote a false gospel is to play a part in bringing another person's soul to eternal ruin. And Paul is saying the condemnation that will fall on the one who is doing the false teaching will be the most severe and terrible of all. Remember Jesus once said it would be better for such a man to have a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the sea than for them to cause someone else to stumble and disbelieve. All of this then is that Paul is describing here is what is being played out in the Galatian church in real time as he's writing and then they're reading his letter. And sadly, it continues to be played out in many churches and many denominations who are rejecting the gospel today. Many men and women, and it, and it seems, always it seems, especially uh, church leaders and teachers in certain arenas, are deserting God and his gospel of grace. We can see it in some of the denominations. We see it amongst many in the Church of England at the moment and, and those in charge, those teaching and saying all is well. They are leading other people astray. Let those who preach a false gospel be accursed is what Paul would say of those who teach falsely. Finally then, before we finish this morning, I just wanted to draw out a few key lessons and principles for how we can avoid the same errors and ensure that we as individuals and as a church continue, thirdly, holding to the gospel. How do we hold to the gospel? Uh, there is, of course, much that could be said here. And as I started to think about this, a whole list of ideas came and I realized, no, we've got to, we've got to really stick to what we're seeing in this passage. This whole series is going to be giving us help on how to hold to the gospel but here are three lessons in particular that I think do flow out of this passage today. First of all, we have here a sober warning 
to teachers, to those of us who in any way are teachers in the church. Those of us who teach have a weighty responsibility on our shoulders, and we ought always to feel it. And, and I want, to, want you to know on behalf of Pete and I, we feel the weight of this responsibility continually and constantly. Um, it's a privilege, but sometimes it makes us shudder, as it should. This is a weighty responsibility. We know, Pete and I know, that teaching the gospel must always remain our first priority. And that we are charged by God to ensure that we always teach it faithfully. It's striking, it strike, strikes me here how Paul doesn't even exclude himself from the warning he's given. Do you, do you see that? Uh, but even if we, he's saying, he, he brought them the gospel, but he's saying, if I come back and bring you a different gospel, let me be accursed. There is only one gospel. As it says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The local church, Grace Church, is in many ways a place for everyone. Uh, Non-Christians, people that aren't yet Christians, uh, and new Christians, young Christians and mature Christians, a place for all of us to serve and learn and grow in understanding together. The church is in many ways for everyone, but the church is not a place for everyone to formally teach. And we want you to know that we take very seriously the question of who we invite here on a Sunday to preach and who we invite and encourage from within the church to take on other teaching responsibilities. Because faithfulness to the gospel and faithfulness to God's word is of paramount importance in every area of teaching ministry here at Grace Church. And for those amongst us who are at the moment serving in some kind of uh, teaching, area of teaching ministry, you're serving in some way where you're opening the Bible and teaching. Maybe it's children's ministry, youth ministry, uh, home group leadership, maybe leading a Christians Explored course or something else. We ought always to be striving to do what Paul counseled Timothy to do. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. For all those of us who teach, parents as well, called to teach our children, let us take seriously this call to teach and pass on God's word faithfully rightly handling the word of truth. That's the first lesson that stands out to me here. The second one is the big one, maybe the obvious one. Beware of false teachers and their teaching. It used to be that false teachers posed the biggest threat to churches when they walked in on a Sunday they, they, or they, they infiltrated the church and were there amongst us. But today, we allow far more false teachers not into our church, but right into our living rooms, into our cars, into our bedrooms as we watch and listen to them in best-selling books or watch them in popular YouTube videos or listen to them over the airways on Christian radio or Christian TV channels. And as we've just seen, it's very easy for any of us to be taken in by false teachers and not even realize at first that what they're teaching is a distortion of the gospel, especially because... False teachers don't always look like false teachers. 
They don't often sound like false teachers. They don't come wearing t-shirts that say, I am out to deceive you today. I am here to lie to you about what God has said. False teachers don't do that. False teachers sometimes look like the most reassuring, trustworthy, impressive, eloquent people and teachers that you could come across. Paul says they might even look like an angel or have the bearing of an apostle, but however they might look or sound, what matters always is not the man or the woman, but the message. What matters is their message. Is their teaching thoroughly biblical and faithful to what the Bible says? Are they preaching the clear and simple gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, that was once for all handed down by God to the apostles and delivered to us here in God's word? Are they exalting Christ alone and all that he has done? Or are they exalting man and the things that man can do? These are the questions we need to ask. We need to exercise the utmost discernment in many ways today, more than ever before in the history of the church, because false teaching so easily comes across our path today. The other problem we need to be aware of is that even when we recognize some distortions in the gospel that they're teaching, we can too easily naively think, well, I'm immune to that error because I've spotted it. I can see that's not quite right what they're saying. Therefore, I'm immune to it and and I can still benefit from the other things that this teacher is saying. At least they're talking, still talking about God, we might say. At least they're mentioning the name of Jesus and they are encouraging me to follow him. We might say it's got to be better than watching soap operas all day, hasn't it? Me listening to this somewhat Christian teaching. Well, here's the thing. It is not better than watching soap operas all day. Soap operas may not be helpful to us. And if you'd like to know why, I can explain. I'm not, so hang on, let me qualify this now. You can watch soap operas. If you watch them a lot, it might have ill effects. But at least they're not pretending to present to us a genuine Christian message. Soap operas are less likely to unknowingly deceive us. Far more Christians have had their faith shipwrecked and destroyed, or at the very least drastically weakened, by bad Christian teaching than by a daily commitment to watching EastEnders. That is the truth of it. The Bible is actually really clear in telling us what we ought to do with false teachers and their teaching. It doesn't say, by all means, listen in for the good bits and sift out the bad. It says, have nothing to do with it. The Apostle John writes in his second letter, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. If anyone comes to you, here's the key, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. There are many deceivers out there in the Christian world, says John. Don't welcome them onto your YouTube feed. Don't bring them onto your bookshelves. Don't allow them to find any kind of welcome in your heart or in your home by having them on in the background during the day. John MacArthur points out even a leader like Timothy, well-trained in divine truth, a pastor, even a pastor, 
was warned to stay away from error and to concentrate on the pure truth of God's words. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 2. He goes on, to subject subject oneself to false teaching, no matter how orthodox one's own convictions may be, is to disobey God and to compromise and weaken one's testimony and to tolerate distortion of the grace of God in Christ. Let us avoid false teachers and false teaching the moment we discern that's what's happening. Thirdly and finally, and then very briefly to end, The third lesson, let us be ever watchful of gospel drift. Let us be ever watchful of gospel drift. What we've been seeing this morning is that the truth and the beauty of the gospel can so easily be lost, as the Galatians are so aptly demonstrating for us. And not just through false teaching, but also much more innocently. It can happen to us, I'm just saying, much more innocently through the daily distraction of other things as well. It is so easy to clutter our minds and our hearts and our lives with many other pressing things, even good things, and forget about the main thing, the most important thing, the gospel of grace. It is easy for us to drift, whether through false teachers or just through daily things. Easy for us to drift away from the gospel that God has given to us. This letter is a call to be watchful for that gospel, gospel drift, to watch for it in our own lives, to watch for it in our church life. It is a call to continually reorient ourselves in every area of our lives to the grace of God and the God of all grace. That, that is very much why Pete and I wanted us to do Galatians this year and to spend so much time here, not because we necessarily have drifted, but because we don't want to drift. We don't want to drift. We don't want to move away from this gospel even an inch. We want to move further up and further in to seeing and savouring the gospel of grace. Our prayer is that we would become even more delighted and devoted to and dependent on the God who has shown us amazing grace. May God continue to give each of us in this room grace to do just that on Sunday mornings as we gather and then day to day as we give our attention again and again to the good news. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer this morning. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are, Lord, you love us, you are faithful to us, and because because you love us and are faithful, you are not backward in bringing warnings to us, warning us of the great danger of drifting from the gospel of grace. Father, please help us. Lord, please help us to guard this gospel together Help us, Lord, to devote our minds and our hearts to it. Help us, we pray, to be discerning of the many different messages out there in the world, in particular in the Christian world. Help us, Lord, to hold fast to the message of salvation by grace alone that you have given to us in your word. And we pray, Lord, that you and your son, Jesus Christ, will be glorified and magnified in our lives as we hold fastly to you and your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.